for forsaking what looks to be a lovely summer's evening to come and hear uh, Jamie about Jane Allison's book. Uh, I'm Toby Dodge, I'm chairing, but much more importantly, uh, this is the book launch of Jamie Allison's uh, uh, The Age of Counter-Revolution, States and Revolutions in the Middle East. If you haven't read it, why? I think it's a superb book. Um, and uh, as, as the blurb I would, uh, says quite aptly, we could, uh, firstly, the, um, the outcome seems an awfully long time ago, and I think reading this, uh, you could slip into pessimism, but I think the great point about Jamie's book is twofold. One, he captures both the possibilities of those moments of mass mobilization and optimism, but also the global, um, the global comparison where, where the mass movement moved from the Middle East globally and, and transformed. But I think the central thing that I took away was his, his big argument that, of course, every revolution is stopped by a, very, a series of very bloody counter-revolutions. And he couples them Tunisia and Egypt, Syria and Bahrain, uh, Libya and Yemen, and then the, the, global, uh, the global comparison as well. So I think what we're going to do today, Jamie, who is a senior lecturer at Edinburgh, has also written a very fine book on Jordan with, uh, with, the, with the help of PowerPoints, apparently, will introduce the book and, and pick on the key themes. Then we have Ala Shahabi and Charles Tripp. Ala uh, teaches Middle East politics at uh, UCL. Charles is uh, an emeritus professor of politics, uh, for, uh, Middle East politics at, at SOAS and was many years ago my PhD supervisor as well. That's when he lost all his hair, I think. So they will then pick up on the themes that they want to, possibly the Gulf and North Africa or whatever they want to really. Um, and then that'll be about 10 minutes each as well. And then we'll throw the floor open to discussion around the themes that Jamie's book raises, but also our two uh, uh, interlocutors raise as well. So Jamie, please uh, take the floor and tell us why the people in the audience who haven't read your book should run out and buy it straight after this event. I think they should actually be removed from the building already. I think it's appalling that they haven't done so. Um, thank you, Toby, and thanks to the Centre for inviting me, to Toby and Nadine for organising this, and especially to Charles and Allah for agreeing to comment on the book. I'd also like to thank all of you for coming, especially those of you, you know who you are, who commented on previous drafts of the book. If there's anything worth listening to in what I say tonight, it's down to you and not to me. Um, when you look, as Toby said, across the region today, despite the fact that we've seen another wave of popular uprisings in 2019 in Algeria, Iraq, Lebanon and Sudan, it's difficult not to think, looking back 12 years ago, of the words of Jean-Paul Sartre, who wrote in his war diary, some 20 years after the events on which he was reflecting, I always thought that something in 1920 to 25 was almost born. Lenin, surrealism, revolutions, jazz, silent films, all this could have come together and then each followed its sporadic destiny. Isolated, they could all be strangled. It's only in my memory that they made up a world. That world is something I think that the people who revolted across the region, across the Middle East and North Africa in 2011, experienced. A world of possibility. 
but one that now seems shut off, one that seems more in accord with a uh, remark of the perhaps the most well-known or the most uh, important uh, modernist poet of Arabic literature, the Syrian writer Adonis, who wrote that the important thing is the outcome of revolutions, not their beginnings. So that you look from the way things are now and you read them back to the way things were. And this is a common way of approaching at both a popular kind of journalistic level and I think a historical and social scientific level what we refer to now as the Arab Spring or the uprisings of 2011, which sees them perhaps as just a set of death events. Nothing could be more... Um, kind of content-free than simply referring to a death. Something happened, events. Um, or perhaps a reprise of Western-led attempts at regime change, such as happened in Iraq uh, in 2003. Or perhaps just something that was doomed to fail. And this is the question that is most often asked. Why did the Arab Spring fail? Or why did the Arab revolutions fail? Were these ever revolutions at all? This is what the argument that I'm trying to address in the book. Not by saying these are definitely successful, or even by saying that that's an unimportant question, but rather that it's missing a much bigger question, which is, why did the Arab counter-revolutions succeed? That's not something that's um, foreordained. And if we answer that question, or we try to, we might learn a bit more about a paradox that kind of defines, I think, the last quarter of the 20th uh, century and the first fifth of this one, which is that there's an increasing number, spread, and depth of what we might call revolutionary mobilizations. So this is a graph from Mark Beisinger's... It's actually a book now. It's called... The Urban Advantage and Revolution, but when he did this, it was a presentation. So that's where I stole the graph from, it's not mine. Um, and what he demonstrates is that from 100 years ago, or from the beginning of the 20th century, revolutions in the sense of mass popular uprisings that overthrow some kind of governmental structure have ups and downs, but they're on a secular trend of increase according to his uh, definition and database. And you can see some definite spikes here. So this would be kind of the Russian Revolution. Am I, uh, am I okay for this? Yeah. Uh, this would be the Russian Revolution and the revolutions after that. Um, some kind of spikes after the end of World War II. Surprisingly, not that many around 1968, but a big one for basically decolonization in the early 1960s. Then 1989, and then a massive spike that continued throughout the 2010s, beginning with what we now call um, the Arab Spring. So Samuel Brannan, Christian Haig, and Catherine Schmidt, in their report, The Age of Mass Protests, note that across the world, anti-government protests increased by 11.5% per year, so cumulatively, throughout the 2010s. All of the, the five largest demonstrations in American history occurred during the decade of the 2010s. The Middle East and, the North, and North Africa, as a region, 
saw the largest concentration of protest activity and the fastest rate of growth, following a dip between 2013 and 2017, um, a renewed expansion leading to 290.5% more protests at the end of the 2020s than there were at the start. So by some measure, we live in the most revolutionary times that there have ever been. And yet the things that we familiarly think of as revolutionary, transformation, fundamental social transformation, seem to have disappeared. Perhaps the last instance Um, that you can think of is probably around 1979, the Iranian Revolution. The Arab revolutions, I argue, actually represent an inflection point, a kind of example through which we can see this process, see the reasons for it. At a very basic level, we need then to understand what we mean by revolutions, counter-revolutions, and most particularly a concept that I use in the book, revolutionary situations. So it's very common to define revolutions in social science as being social revolutions, ones that fundamentally transform a society, usually with some kind of class-based revolt from below, to borrow the terms of Theta Scotchpool, who's the, the big authority in this field, versus political revolutions, which change either the ruling personnel of a state or perhaps more deeply the way that the state is run. So say from authoritarian rule, some kind of democratic or liberal democratic rule. Revolutionary situations, however, are different. So revolutionary situations are not outcomes. A revolutionary situation, as I define it in the book, which is basically taken from Charles Tilley, is one where there's essentially dual power in a state, where there's some kind of mass mobilization that leads to a fracturing of sovereignty. So different competing orders at work. In some ways, a revolutionary situation is a bit like Schrodinger's cat, but for social scientists. So it's superposed. It's not the case that one thing is going to happen or another. It's only from the vantage view of the future, which we are now living in, that we can say the past became this way. To avoid that kind of retrospective hardening, I'm doing this work. They say, actually, in a revolutionary situation, as well as revolutionaries, there are counter-revolutionaries. There are those who wish to pursue what I define, defining counter-revolution as a policy and a movement that is seeking to end the revolutionary situation on terms that are favourable to the old way of doing things, the old regime, whether that's at a social or a political level. But it's not just the continuation of the past. Counter-revolutions are also outcomes of revolutions. They also change things. They are also something new. Um, to get into the kind of empirical part, let's say, of the book. I'll try and rush through this, and there's really a lot more in the book, perhaps Charles and Allah will mention. But one of the, I want to make kind of three central points. The first one is that, in fact, the Arab revolutions of 2011, I refer to them as that because they produced revolutionary situations, were some of the deepest 
widest and most popular mass mobilizations we've seen for a century. And you can see this if you look at, um, for example, levels of participation. So, so far as we know, um, where we have data for states such as Egypt and Tunisia, to some degree Libya, the levels of participation in Egypt were about 25% the population, 20-25% the population, which is not a majority, but in terms of revolutionary history, that's huge. If you look at, as far as we can tell, major revolutions like the Russian Revolution, you're talking about 10% of the population participating. The Iranian Revolution, 15 to 20. So this is huge. And that's the lowest. The Egyptian level of participation was the lowest. When you look at Tunis, or Tunisia, sorry, uh, you find 30 to 40. Libya, the data is probably a bit skewed by people who have been asked, mainly in eastern Libya. But some people, um, or the Aberdeen uh, Arab, uh, forgot the name of the, the report, but something like 67% of people in Libya in 2014, an absolute majority, claimed to have participated in the uprising against, against Gaddafi. That's probably not true. But it still demonstrates that these were very, very widespread, very, very deep mobilizations. They also were not simply kind of non-violent uh, protests that didn't challenge the state. They very deeply challenged the state. We know about that in places like Syria and Libya, which then, and Yemen, which became focuses or sites of civil war. But even in Egypt, for example, half of the police stations in Cairo and 60% of the police stations in Alexandria were burnt to the ground on one day the 28th of January 2011. That's been shown to reflect actually a strategic choice that to get rid of the police so that you can have big demonstrations. These are not, um, these are not contradictory things. But if we have these very deep, wide, popular mobilizations, how can counter-revolution be successful? I make essentially three points about why. I'll try and Again, buzz through these. First of all, counter-revolution is not just something that happens from the elites or rulers. In fact, there's always a kind of popular base for counter-revolution if it's going to be successful. What I call the counter-revolution from below. This has taken different forms. So Ernst Bloch, famous uh, philosopher and historian, described fascism, so European fascism, as the debt that reaction paid to the Paris Commune. So this kind of popularizing and creating a mass base for essentially anti-revolutionary movements. But that varies across national kind of boundaries and histories. In a place like Egypt or Tunisia, where there's a strong history of post-colonial developmental nationalism, particularly directed against... Um, Islamism or the Muslim Brotherhood, and I'm not saying the Muslim Brotherhood can't be counter-revolutionaries, that's also part of my book, but directed against Islamism, that was the kind of glue that brought together very large parts of the previous revolutionary coalition in these countries with fragments of the old regime in the military in Egypt or political parties in Tunisia. Syria and Bahrain, Yemen, different again. Particularly in Syria and Bahrain, 
there, is a, there was a role for sectarian mobilization. But that's got to be addressed carefully because, first of all, they're different in those different contexts. And secondly, when we say sectarianism, we're not really talking about the sect as a kind of political actor, but rather as a method. Something that allows, for example, in Syria, for a basically cross-sectarian ruling group with Alawis, so particular uh, religious sect, at its heart, to adopt a kind of method that alienated a large part of the Sunni population. But even if you look at... Um, it's probably true to say that most Sunnis in Syria opposed Assad. But most supporters of Assad were probably Sunni. Because it's the largest part of the population. Uh, so if you find that um, looking at sect as a kind of actor is wrong, basically. What I'm saying is that these are methods by which a counter-revolutionary coalition is built. So the second point I want to say is that counter-revolution has to kind of pass beyond a border. So these regimes, in general, are not able to stabilize themselves or to come back into power without external aid. And that's that varied. I mean, so, for example, in Tunisia, the European Union played to some degree a role, but it was less... Um, probably the least internationalized of all of these counter-revolutions. That's partly one of the reasons why I think there was a brief, or at least an interlude, of some kind of democracy in Tunisia. Then you have very, very internationalized counter-revolutions in Syria, in Yemen, Libya, and Bahrain, where there are actually interventions, so invasions by outside powers, um, by Russia in Syria, by... Gulf states, essentially it's a one remove in both Bahrain and Libya, which is not a new thing. So throughout the history of revolutionary uprisings, there's always been a tendency for the existing states, because revolution is a threat to states as a whole, a threat to principle of sovereignty as a whole, to unite against revolutionary movements. What's different about the kind of Arab revolutions is that there were different competing forms of counter-revolution. So definitely a kind of Saudi-led counter-revolutionary axis. That's probably the strongest one. A kind of Russian-Iranian one. And then the US and Turkey with Qatar kind of moving between the two. Um, which explains, again, in part, why there have been so many kind of such bloody complexity in the civil wars that followed and these revolutions. So there are, of course, there's a lot more to be said about what's in the book. So I talk a fair amount about the new projects or state projects that developed, particularly in the north of Syria, in ISIS or the Kurdish areas, but I'm not going to be able to go that much into that. And instead kind of want to go back to the big picture. So I said before, there's a definite change in the kind of revolutions that happen around about the late 1970s. So from a point where social transformation, social revolution was on the agenda, to one where it kind of shrank, 
towards being one of political transformation, what later in some cases is called democratization, or in other phases sometimes referred to as regime change. Something happened then in that before that period, let's say at a global level, to lead to that change, of which the Arab revolutions are kind of a part. What I argue happened is that, that for the first time by the late, the last part of the 20th century, most of the world was comprised of urban dwelling, if not wage laborers, people who had to try and seek a life outside of the land. This gives you a different type of counter-revolutionary and a different type of revolutionary. So in the, in the past, let's say in the 1960s, which is the heyday of kind of anti-colonial revolutions, revolutions against either uh, settler colonial regimes or, by and large, landlord-led regimes that were incorporated into the global capitalist economy, the world was about two-thirds rural, one-third urban. By the year 2000, that flipped over. And in the, all of the states referred to here, all of the Arab states referred to here, to a greater degree, in fact. This gives you a different site to do revolution, if you like. Not the countryside, not aimed against the landlord, but rather the city. And that's what characterized most of the Arab uprisings. There were big focuses in rural areas, and especially in Syria and Yemen, provincial towns, really a big part of this. But they weren't movements about or against uh, landlordism. That had already passed away. The landlords of the past had either been expropriated or turned into basically capitalists. But only a few of these states actually have uh, heavily industrialized. And where you have kind of um, industrialized or organized working class traditions, there you tend to get more, if you like, basically more democracy. So that was the case in Tunisia. But in a situation where you now have, on the one hand, states which are aligned with these kind of financial capitalist ruling classes rather than agrarian ones, and on the other, if you like, kind of semi-urban or recently urbanized, uh, let's call them subaltern groups, so people who seek, have to live through various means of wage labor and unwage labor. Um, you have a situation where you get a different kind of basically revolutionary confrontation. Not one that is about um, kind of social transformation, get rid of, getting rid of landlords, but equally one that finds it very difficult to take on the power of the state. Now, this isn't what I'm saying, this isn't inevitable, but it is, if you like, the background to why you've seen these uh, particularly virulent counter-revolutions in the region. So I think that that's probably enough from me, and I'll let the comments come in. on the Arab Spring and then talk about the book's contributions. Okay, so as we know, 12 years ago, 
Um, exactly 20 years after the war on terror began, the Middle East erupted in one of the largest revolutionary spectacles since the collapse of Eastern Europe in what has become to be known as the Arab Spring. And then in 2019, a second wave of uprisings began Lebanon, Iraq, Algeria, Sudan, and Iran. Though they have not led to outward regime change, with the exception of Tunisia and Egypt, as um, Jamie alludes, revolutionary movements have led to major political and social reconfigurations and ruptures. Given the colossal, the colossal scale of these movements, why has the largest political event on the globe and the biggest social transformation we have seen this century, the Arab Spring uprisings, not been, not, have not been shaping global political theory? How have populist dictatorships legitimized unprecedented levels of repression to repress, to repress revolutionary desire? This is what Jamie says speaks to the significance and the scale of that revolutionary moment. How does the Middle East contribute to our understandings of what we see as global phenomenon of populism and protest? And in this decade of dissent, populism and protest globally, I'm interested in what the Middle East region has become as a site worthy of study. Can it offer the world the answers we seek in the current global paradox that increasingly mass mobilizations have produced only limited social and political transformation? In turn, the increased authoritarianism globally uh, is a process of de-democratization, de de or at least what we call the democratic deficit, um, have been the main ways that have transformed these states um, in direct response to pressure from below. As our good friend and imprisoned uh, comrade Ala Abdel Fattah says, we need the West to look at its own uh, democratic institutions to try to save those before they try to intervene with us. So um, within, within that broader context, um, which Jamie does discuss at the end of the book, um, and he tries to, to relate it to those global phenomenon, I disagree. I mean, he thinks to think they may not be, you can't really connect uh, the current moment in the West with the, with the uprisings, but that's something of a debate. Um, there are three broad streams in the literature on the Arab Spring, which now, 12 years on, we, can, we have the time and space that can be afforded to us to reflect on. The first kind of stream in the literature simply maintains that these were not revolutions because they did not result in successful, profound, and enduring change in the state. Jamie discusses why this is a problematic and why we can't think of revolution just in terms of the outcomes. Of course, many of our friends and colleagues and myself, we've, we've sort of you know, talked about social transformations and social movements and you know, have, have offered, in the first, particularly in the first five years after the Arab Spring, there was a wave of interest and a whole new generation of Arab scholars that have studied uh, and provided rich empirical uh, analysis on their own countries. The second stream adopts Gramscian approaches that sees the 2011 uprisings as open-ended revolutionary situations that issued hybrid forms of revolution, such as revolution restorations or passive revolutions, particularly in a place like Egypt. Jamie draws on the work of Brecht de Smith and the idea of hybrid forms of revolution. The third stream of literature explicitly treats the, treats the Arab Spring and its aftermath through the lens of repression and authoritarian practice, almost as tools and the methods that are used by authoritarian states. Here, the work of Mark Owen Jones and myself and others We've looked specifically at the repertoires and tools of authoritarianism and authoritarian resilience in the wake of uh, the protests and how they were sort of ended and eliminated. Um, but what Jamie does here is he brings in the comparative component 
right? That's where that's kind of a major contribution of the book. Uh, because he places the different experiences in, in this broader com comparison and a global comparison. That to have a counter-revolution, you need a revolutionary beginning. What we see as a counter-revolution is a structural recomposition of the state, and the state responds to exactly the threats that the revolution first presented to it. This recomposition of the state is a direct response to the strength of the revolution and marker of its success. This is basically um, Jamie, Jamie's main argument. Define the tendency in the literature to refer to the failure of the Irish Spring. If you think of them as successful counter-revolutions, in a way, that conception changes the way you think about the revolution in the first place. As, as I kind of, the analogy I like, like to use is like a big plaster on a wound, and what Jane's doing is looking at the plaster and thinking like, this is what it looks like, because these aren't the same uh, wounds that, that existed prior. So the book's main contribution, um, I, I mean, I can go on, but the book's main contribution, firstly, is obviously that it challenges this traditional re definition of re revolution as a, a rapid structural transformation. This really is a kind of, you know, Eurocentric idea um, that the central focal point of power is a state uh, as a trinity of the th throne, the sword, and the altar from Europe's 19th and 20th centuries. And if we were to think more externally, tethered to this Westphalian notion of sovereignty. This definition, obviously, as we said earlier, focuses on the outcome, not the process of the revolution or its origin. It focuses on the nation state, about, about the changes and transformations within it, and not necessarily on society or the changes within society. Since the Arab Spring, um, we've, we've, the, the, you know, the, the literature has been sort of mostly split. Either you do social movements or you do sort of state work, um, or political science, geopolitics. Um, so what he's done really is bring all of those three things together. Um, so really, it's about subjectivity, about counter-revolutionary subjectivity. And if we think of that differently, this opens up uh, a whole new field of research. Yeah. Um, to think of the counter-revolutionary subject as an assemblage of actors, and how we study that subjectivity of the state and its institutions and as, and as a counter-revolutionary um, hopefully, it will begin another decade of uh, interesting field research. Uh, secondly, it, uh, now that we know that we're looking at this counter-revolutionary subject, uh, what he does is says, well, look, the subject reconstitutes itself within and without. So not a se separate external internal dimensions, but as a, necess a, necess a necessity for this counter-revolutionary subject to seal the ruptures that the revolution has caused. As these wounds, this, you know, the subject has experienced this wound, right? This kind of major betrayal of trust in the social contract that now needs to be sealed. And what it takes is the effort that it takes to be sealed and to reconstitute itself is at a much higher scale and level than we've ever seen previously. I know where I'm from, I'm from Bahrain, we, you know, the, the, the resources, the amount of external uh, support from without that he describes was is major. It's nothing compared to anything that had existed prior. Uh, he reminds us of Fred Halliday. I'm only noting this because you know we remember our colleague who we fondly remember, and he kind of quotes from him that the international above all, um, sorry, is when describing counter-revolutions, Fred Halliday says that the international is above all because like revolution, counter-revolution is both product and a further stimulant of a generalized crisis of the state system that engulfs a number of countries. 
that's just because the international dimension. Thirdly, the book's contribution, uh, you know, and we make this argument all the time as Middle East area specialists, is often portrayed as exceptional and peripheral in global theories of revolution and political science in general. So very basic orientalist theories of tribes, sex, uh, often used in politics uh, um, in the analysis of protests and conflicts in the region, particularly driven by the exponential growth in security studies that spawned that was spawned after the war on terror be began in 2001. You know, this is a scorched, and you know, we have a lot of work to do there. So how do we relocate the Middle East back into the global that goes beyond these basic um, realist sort of political science theories? Um, broader works on revolution do not provide much insight into the contextual understandings of the beginnings or endings. And our colleague John Chowcroft notes that these theories provide us with important descriptive taxonomies, but at the expense of contextual distinction. The value of the book, therefore, lies in providing us with the comparative and the contextual that we need to contribute to global theories of revolution. Um, and just finally, on the, on, on, on the book's contribution is. Um, I want to relate it to the kind of ethnographic turn that, that's taken place, where a lot of our colleagues are doing ethnographic work. Again, because uh, the good work that's being done ethnographically focuses on political groups and communities, which is really, really important. But by looking at the counter-revolutionary subject, it, the book should encourage us to look at the ethnography of the state, to bring it, to do more investigative and deep thinking into how these institutions of the counter-revolution work and operate not just the military or the surveillance or the media or um, any of these kind of state institutions, really to think of drawing on the rich literature on, on the you know, kind of institutional ethnographies. We haven't had much work there. I'm completely kind of obsessed with investigative research, but the, that seems to be more of the media space rather than academic. So I hope the book allows us to do that and to support the, the, the great journalists in these countries um, from Egypt and other places who are trying to do that kind of investigative research. Um, and so finally, uh, just to conclude, um, I, as I say, as, a, as I've listed, uh, particularly kind of placing this book within this, this decade of dissent, um, I want to invite us to think about questions of temporality that the book maybe touches on. So the idea that, that the Arab Spring is an unfinished project and that there is an anticipation amongst all of us and people of the, of, of, of the region that there are future uprisings to come. So in this question of temporality, these temporal disturbances connect past oppressed generations to present ones, creating a need for action that connects our thinking of uprisings, that this uprising will erupt again, not if, but when. And they may not erupt over here, but maybe over there. They, you know, they might start in one city, they were in one city in 2011, they might erupt somewhere else. So alongside this anticipation of the next revolution is the question of periodicity and the cyclicality of revolution. As we saw, the Arab Spring never ended because it emerged again in 2017, 2019 in Algeria, in Sudan, in Iraq, and in Lebanon. So where will the next uprising happen and where will that take place? is a question that, uh, that, you know, that has been really understudied and I would encourage others to look at. Um, particularly, I mean, I, I relate this because in Bahrain we had a quite a rhythmic um, pattern of uprisings every 10 years. It's sort of been uh, 12 years since the Arab Spring, so I'm like kind of, you know, <laughs> like this, right? 
um, and the conditions are, uh, are worse. So the question is, is when. So this question of temporality, I kind of wanted to invite uh, as as a reflection on the book to think about the future. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Oh, thank you very much, and Jamie, thank you very much for giving us this chance to engage with your book so so thoroughly. It's a, an excellent book. I'm not going to comment on the empirical side of it, because I find that very, very impressive indeed, to juggle, as it were, the accounts of uh, six different countries, very different countries, uh, but yet to make uh, serious points that, that bound them together. So what I want to do, just in brief comments that I have to make, is to pick out three aspects of what I regard as uh, a key plea of your book, which is to take counter-revolution seriously. So to think about what it is that you're asking us to do and the ways in which we might do it most productively, uh, which I think you've done uh, to a very large degree. And I'll just raise a couple of questions at the end of each one to say perhaps one should reflect on this a bit much. So I think that the, the first thing that struck me reading the book was the fact that um, you were asking us to look at counter-revolution as a process as much in train as revolution itself. So, in other words, it's not just a, a reflection, but an, uh, it's a part of the same process itself. But you also, I think, um, in your reproach to political science for failing to look at counter-revolutions uh, adequately to theorize about them, uh, making us think about them, as we do sometimes about revolutions, as heuristic devices as ways of trying to investigate how power works in different places at different times, and thinking, therefore, about what are they pointing our gaze towards. And in this sense, I think you did a great job of um, making us focus on the processes and the factors involved, their relative weight, how they combine, which was clearly one of the questions, again, that you were very careful to make in the book, I think, quite rightly, having been um, very well aware, and you covered very comprehensively, the uh, rich literature on revolutions, you don't want to make the same mistakes in looking at counter-revolutions, so it's the same kind of thing. It isn't. And clearly that notion of uh, coalitions, of contingency, of people coming together, uh, opportunities not taken, opportunities missed, or in a sense, the very frailty of history itself uh, is, is worth uh, dwelling upon. And I think you do that uh, very, very well indeed. And I think also what you bring out well is that not only do you talk about revolutionary situations, but you also about counter-revolutionary potentials. And I think that that's something that one has to bear in mind, because as the revolutions play themselves out in the way that you say, and I agree completely with the fact that one shouldn't just judge revolutions as successful events, because you've got to think about the processes involved. So you're at the same time thinking about the counter-revolutions, because you could be very sure that the counter-revolutionaries are thinking about that at the same time uh, in a very focused and ruthless way as well. So I think that was good. And I think in doing so, you drew attention to particular historical conjunctures, perceived opportunities, uh, how people might act, and indeed the global framing and the regional framing of these events themselves. So uh, I think towards the end, you're talking about the fact, and I think that Alain mentioned this as well, that counter-revolution is not simply a return to the past, but involves a recomposition uh, of some kind. Uh, and that merits a study in itself, and I would totally agree about that. The question I have to, to put to you, I think, to think about, to reflect upon, after I think you did a, a splendid job of, of uh, critiquing the absence of serious analysis and making a case for saying that we should be looking at counter-revolutions. 
Is there a danger that this heuristic device of the counter-revolution looking at it, gazing at what it is directly our gaze, is there a danger that it points our gaze in so many directions, precisely because one has to take into account so many different aspects that are coming together, that it becomes analytically rather diffuse uh, as a term? Or is that an advantage? Uh, and I think in some ways, um, one of the problems I sometimes felt, and I think you had to defend it at certain moments, I think that was worth pushing you on, perhaps, is that you were trying to distinguish the counter-revolution from what you might call the everyday repression. Because the everyday repression continues. And I think sometimes it would have benefited if you'd looked at the problematic of the state more. Because the state itself, which is the target of both the revolution and also the vehicle of the counter-revolution, is a problematic entity. And they're not analogous, as you know, as you very well say, in, that, in that, those uh, six countries. So I think, therefore, the state is a problematic term, but actually, in problematizing it, it allows us to think about what was distinctive about both the revolutionary process and also the counter-revolutionary process, and therefore, in a sense, what was uh, happening before that. Because you, you mentioned that at the end, and I'll get onto that. So I think that that was, that was worth at least thinking about. So it's that question of, if it is a heuristic device, is it focused enough, or is it focused enough when one doesn't think about the problem of the state itself? The second aspect which is more about the if you like, the aspirations of the counter-revolutionaries as well as their fears and concerns is the notion that counter-revolution comes across in the way you talk about it and write about it, uh, and uh, persuasively enough, I think, as a way to end the open-endedness of revolutionary practice, of revolutionary situation. In other words, trying to, to close, and I think you use that term quite often, close the potential uh, of the open-endedness. And I think you also make uh, a good point that that was often precisely the thing that um, drew many people who had hitherto been revolutionary. Once the revolutionary process has got to a certain stage, they began to join the counter revolution because they worried about being, in the Egyptian term, eaten from below. There's, another, there's a sense in which that becomes uh, something to think about. So the, the notion of what it was that was being attacked by counter revolutionaries, uh, not simply the you know, the, the, um, the nature of defiance, but actually uh, something much more fundamental. And something much more fundamental you bring out very well in some of the revolutionary processes, which effectively was to limit and circumscribe rights and claims. Open-ended rights and claims are the most dangerous thing for those who are you know, ensconced in power. So trying to transform people from, as it were, imagining plural rights of the citizen uh, to define and enforce duties of the subject. So trying to effect that transformation or redeploy that transformation uh, if it had been challenged as it had. And therefore to stop the possibility of imagined or possibly real permanent revolution. A fear, as I mentioned, of uh, many of those who were once with the revolutionary movements that this would never stop and it would bring the wrong kind of people to power and therefore I shall now throw in my lot with uh, the counter-revolutionary. So, I think there was a, a wonderful expression you used at one point in this, which was the attempt of counter-revolution to end what you call the painful and extended uncertainty of revolution, which can be a painful, uncertain, and rather terrifying process, and sometimes civil war. And you called it a wound in time that cried out to be closed. And I think that was a very powerful expression, and a, and a, uh, a good expression, for trying to understand what it was that had been so disruptive and disturbing 
about revolution, even for those who you might have thought in the longer term might have benefited from it in one sense or another. So I think that trying to get at that question of effective power uh, of counter-revolution was, was key. So the question that I have uh, is that, um, is there a danger that when one begins to look at this deeply, then in a sense like the term revolution itself, counter-revolution becomes normatively charged. It no longer becomes an analytical term, it becomes something that has associated with it the notion that unequal power relations will be established and that therefore some form of oppression, repression, uh, domination is established too. So I think that there's, and that may be actually an accurate description of what happens, but I think there's clearly something one has to be a bit wary of. Just as with revolution, it wasn't the emancipation that it was often said to be, it was something else altogether. So again, something to reflect on, but I thought you brought out really well the notion of the, um, of the ways in which um, the open-endedness of revolutionary processes are the most terrifying things for those who don't know where it's going to, even for those, whether it's below or above, uh, who might feel threatened by it. Um, and finally, uh, this question of, and I, I would agree with this, the notion that counter-revolution is not simply an effort to reinstate the old regime, it's an effort to reconstitute, but also to reshape hegemony of some form or another. Uh, to make the link, as you mentioned, between the elite and the masses, to reinforce that link, to something that got broken, has to be reconstituted, but not necessarily in exactly the same way, to convince them that the rulers' interests are their interests. That's in the sense, going back to that notion, I think that um, what you did very effectively when you were looking at Egypt, at Tunisia, at Syria as well, um, you, actually in, in Yemen too, you brought out really well the notion of uh, the legacies of earlier generations of anti-colonial revolution and revolution from above that followed, how this provided a resource on which the counter-revolutionary movement could draw precisely to begin to create or recreate the links between, as it were, uh, the uh, revolution from above and the masses that they were seeking to remobilize or recast in their own way. Uh, and to take up Alain's point as well, I thought what struck me again was the way this made you focus on the constitution of the revolutionary, of the counter-revolutionary subject. Uh, because in a sense, I think you stated quite explicitly at some point that one of the objectives is to ensure that the revolutionary subject is replaced by the counter-revolutionary subject. And the techniques by which that's achieved, the, the methods, the aims, uh, and the overall, as it were, view of, of social formations, I think is, is a key part of it, and a key part of the investigation, as I would agree with Allah, is also something that is worth taking further. How is the counter-revolutionary subject formed? Um, people have done, but again, that may come back to the first question that I had to leave you with, which is how do we distinguish the counter-revolutionary subject from the subject of everyday repression, the kind of people that... Uh, that uh, um, many people have written about uh, in, in, in very effectively and very fluently, but a, a sense in which is there something different that one needs to think about. So the question about that I, I think all the areas to reflect upon in thinking about this notion of um, reshaping hegemony and reconstituting the counter-revolutionary subject is, is there a methodological challenge here that is difficult to grapple with? And how does one grapple with it? On, in a number of ways. One is on the time frame. 
Because again, as I mentioned, the notion that we're looking at things on a different time frame, both from the point of view of the revolutionaries, the counter-revolutionaries, but also the international or regional actors that play a part in it, but also in terms of trying to judge how the subject is being formed and what the result of that is. Are there, if you like, diversity of competing forces within the counter-revolutionary movement? I think you quite accurately bring out the sort of competition between different elements of the counter-revolution movement. It's not a single movement by any means. It's a competitive movement, sometimes regionally competitive, sometimes uh, domestically and, and so often joined together in some form or other. So identifying the location of the subject uh, and how we begin to understand it, which again raises the question of the need for understanding, taking seriously counter-revolution and therefore taking seriously the constitution of the counter-revolutionary subject. But thank you very much for what you've given us to, to think about. Thanks a lot. If you hold those thoughts, I'll throw it open to the uh, audience and then you can cleverly blend your responses <laughs> to, to uh, whatever questions we have. Do we have any questions? Yes, you, sir. Yeah, yeah. I, um, yeah, I haven't read uh, your book yet. Uh, no. but, <laughs> so thanks for allowing me to stay in the room. Um, it looks um, fantastic. Open to questions. It looks fantastic. I definitely will. Three questions. You don't, you don't feel obliged to answer them all. One, firstly, um, you said at one point that the counter-revolutions that crushed the Arab Spring uprisings were particularly particularly vicious. Uh, what are you sort of comparing them this against? What's your um, because obviously if you think of the crushing of the movement around Allende in Chile or Sukarno in Indonesia, let alone Stalin's crushing of the Russian Revolution or um, or Paris Commune, etc., all pretty um, <coughs> vicious too. Um, second question is. Um, how do you make sense theoretically of democratization in a revolutionary episode here? Because to me, it seems to have revolutionary and counter-revolutionary mo moments. On the one hand, the mass is pushing for greater expansion of rights and liberties and power. On the other hand, the channeling of movements that often exceed um, bourgeois um, structures, channeling them back into the uh, into the institutions that, ma that maintain and re-establish hier the hierarchies of, of bourgeois order. And thirdly, I share your view that the 1970s was a very special decade to look, to look at this kind of subject. But I'm, I wonder why you focus it's this, this so, so solely on the, the urbanization of the world and the, the movement away from movements against landlordism and to, to, towards urban-based movements. Because so many revolutionary moments in the movements in the 1920s, for example, were very urban-based, and there were there were other macro changes going on, of, of, of which the 1970s is the, is the center. The end of the age of empires, the, 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 the globalization of the nation state as the classic, now classic form of bourgeois uh, international order, the, the end of the mass movements of the 1960s and early 70s, um, and, the re and the consolidation of a, of, of a sort of liberal democratic norm as the normal, uh, perceived normal um, state of, of bourgeois rule in the world from that moment in the 1970s. So there was a lot more going on than just the urbanization, the end of, la the end of landlordism, as, as you were putting it, it seems to me, in the 1970s. Hold that thought, we'll have another couple. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you. 
for, for an interesting presentation. And again, I must start by apologizing uh, for not having read your book yet, but I will certainly read it because it speaks very much to the work I'm looking into also. Um, my question uh, is very much in continuation of, of Charles' uh, question about the distinction between counter-revolutionary forces and everyday repression. Um, I would like to hear your reflections, because this is something I've been, I've been thinking a lot about, how you would conceptualize the intermediate period uh, from the end of street revolution or street mobilization, uh, but before things turn back to everyday life. I'm talking about the period where we actually start seeing uh, the, the real outcomes uh, of, of social uprisings, like Alad talked about, what we see uh, uprisings the, the effect of uprisings can perhaps better be understood in terms of creating legacy, shaping new organizations, uh, new ways of doing politics. All these things that are, are things that happen mainly in the aftermath of street mobilization. We've seen this in Iraq and Lebanon. So how would you conceptualize the type of repression that regimes exercise in order to prevent uh, street mobilizations or popular uprisings from, from gaining these... Uh, um, say more long term or like from, from solidifying themselves. Um, is that a form of counter revolution? Is it a post post counter revolution or counter post revolution? Or, or how would you conceptualize it? Great. And the final uh, question in this round. Yeah. yeah, I was um, really interested in this exchange about the relationship between authoritarianization in Western liberal democracies and the Arab revolutions. And I wanted to invite the panel to say, more about that and how they connect and I, I can't think of asking the question in the way that pretends that I've read the book so <laughs> sorry for revealing my ignorance <laughs> Jamie um, so but isn't one uh, way of thinking about the interconnection kleptocracy <clears throat> and and the blurring of decision the relationships between uh, states and markets and economic power and political power and is this a dynamic we see in both instances. All right, Jamie, any and all of those? Okay, uh, let's see if I can start with what I think is the, the uh, shared one, which is about the kind of boundary question uh, and the kind of temporality, I suppose, that I mentioned. The, any social <coughs> phenomenon is something that to a degree we are giving a name to a set of practices and experiences because we need to do that. And there's always something arbitrary about that. So there's something arbitrary about the way that I use the term counter-revolution. There'll be something arbitrary about the way anybody else uses it as well. Um, I think there is a way of distinguishing between everyday repression and counter-revolution that is politically and theoretically meaningful because it makes counter-revolution distinct in, and this is to come back, perhaps where particularly vicious was wrong, Gareth, but vicious. I mean, I, I, want, I wanted to focus on the necessity of the sadism and of the excess of violence. When ordinary, of course, the secret police and you know, all kinds of repressive bodies are cruel, but there's something about the form of abnegation demanded of people through the level of violence after a counter-revolution 
that is there because the revolution has happened, or the revolutionary situation has happened. I spent, tried, I didn't say this so much in the book because it's a very important in the talk, because it's, you have to hear people's testimonies, it takes a lot of time. Um, the affective change in millions upon millions of people's lives across the region is something that had to be destroyed for the counter-revolution to work. And that gives it an extra dimension. Because, as I say, it's putting an end to that breach in the social order and physically, either by killing or by imprisonment or uh, expulsion, or in the case of Bahrain, removal of citizenship, in the case of Syria, a conditional citizenship, so people who are returning to Syria basically to have access to public services and things like this have to demonstrate their loyalty in a way to the, to, to the regime. Um, to remove those people and their experiences from the national polity. That's not what's going on in everyday repression. Everyday repression has some sense that you're doing it for the good people against the bad. There is a difference, and it's a difference that depends upon this breach. And I think that that can be found historically. You can roughly get a point where you say this, this has happened, and therefore we can say sort of why or to what degree it's happened. Um, <clears throat> on the point about, uh, what was it? Uh, Charles's point about kind of I, well, hopefully that addresses some of the reconstitution kind of part and the time frame, but that, that's difficult. Methodologically, it's also difficult to, you can't really go and speak to people in the Kabarat and say, how are you doing with the counter-revolution? Um, they're not going to respond or understand it in those terms. Um, so it's methodologically difficult, and perhaps that's a weakness. I think on the question of kind of normativity, I hope, I, I tried to kind of bring this out in the book that so Edmund Burke, who of course is a famous counter-revolutionary, uh, wrote that the old regime was beautiful, the revolution is sublime. So what he meant by that, of course, is the old regime has order. The revolution has awe. It's something that is terrifying, a terrifying new thing. And even for people who are revolutionaries or who want society to change, it is terrifying. And to be in a situation where you don't know what's going to happen each day is also terrifying, as well as exhilarating. And counter-revolutionary aspiration is understandable. It's rational, actually. Now, it's rational in a system that may be irrational, but it's, it's possible to understand that reasoning. And I hope that I tried to, not to stereotype the, the people that I was talking about. Um, on the question of uh, yeah, so I think the democratization and 1970s and urbanization are kind of related. <coughs> I probably was a bit schematic in what I said. But you can see, right, obviously urban revolution was a big thing, and especially in the early 1920s in Europe. I was focusing on, I think, the, basically the anti-colonial revolutions. And partly even because in those urban revolutions that happened in early 20th century Europe, agrarian um, social classes played a big role in the counter-revolution. Now I'm not saying, I want to make this very clear, I'm not saying Arnold Mayer's argument that modernity didn't start until 1958 or whatever. I mean, the counter-revolutions of the early 1920s in Europe were about preserving capitalism 
and capitalist social order, as indeed are the actually ones of 2011 and But they have a different admixture and therefore different limits of how far you can go with democratization. Because it's generally true that, at least according to the work that's been done on this, particularly by a sociologist called Michael Albertus at the University of Chicago, what you might call coercive landlords, so people who exercise relatively personalistic control over their labor force, which has been common for most of human history, uh, but especially settler colonialism, settler colonial landlords, and kind of older forms, um, tend to not tend to oppose even liberal democracy. Partly because it gives formal legal status to their laborers. It gives a sense of kind of formal equality. When they are therefore a stronger presence in counter-revolutionary movements, you had this really direct reactionary position of saying absolutely no reform whatsoever. What we saw after the decline, after the change of that form of life, this change into urban wage-seeking and wage-earning life, let's say, was the scope for democratization. So most of the big waves of democratization that happened in the 1970s and 80s had at some way in their heart work urban working class movements. That's been well demonstrated in the literature. So contrary to popular belief, liberal democracy is actually the product of expanding working classes and declining landlords. What happened after about the year 2000, I would say, and what was always present to a degree in the Middle East was actually uh, a split between the people who were looking for formal democracy and the kind of uh, those areas where there was an organized working class. So, for example, in Tunisia, I'm not saying that the UGTT or the Tunisian trade union opposed democracy, but rather that the people who were strongest and likeliest to benefit from winning elections, i.e. Islamists, were the people who wanted a kind of democratic state that would prevent any kind of social transformation. That's quite clear. If you, look, if you read what the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt had to say, what Anahda had to say in Tunis, they were very angry at the continuation of strike activity and so on. So there was a separation that hadn't existed in the 1980s, 1970s cases, which gave grounds for this kind of counter-revolution. Not saying it was made inevitable. Um, there was a loose point, which is about how to link the global and kind of regional authoritarianization. I'd rather hear a lot respond to that because you said you disagreed with me, so I want you to say why. <laughs> I think I think um, I really quickly scan the conclusions. Tell me if I'm wrong. Okay. I think you compared the the revolutionaries in the Arab Spring to the current populist. Uh, movements today and said they're no, not you didn't maybe I misread it. But I wanted to in that in making that point and good that you didn't was to compare the counter revolutionary and I'm thinking of things like surveillance. Mm -hmm. uh, the arrests of protesters last week at the coronation, uh, the rise of the Elon Musks of the world and the, the censorship online. You know, things like that where I've actually as I'm looking at these developments in the West, I'm thinking there, I can see this, you know, the, the camp kind of, it doesn't matter what the revolutionaries are to compare, you know, they're not maybe fighting for bread and, and 
freedom, but they're, you know, they're the, you know, we can we can argue about what's left and what's right and what's, uh, you know, what, what these populist movements in the West stand for. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about how states are responding to rising popular movements um, or populism, uh, and the, the 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 yeah, rather than. Okay, maybe we can argue whether this is examples of everyday repression that's happening, sort of seeping in through our systems with, uh, that we're sort of not even blind to. We know it's happening, but it's it's emerging as a, some kind of counter-revolution. Is there a comparison there? Because I think there's a lot learning, there's some kind of learning uh, that happens. And you mentioned this, you know, we use a lot of Western consultants in, in the Gulf, and, a lot of, and, the, and then the Gulf also needs 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 learns from the West around, for example, investing in major prestige projects like look at Saudi Arabia now with with this golf tournament, for example. It, it seems like it's about golf or Formula One. It seems like it's about that, but we know it's more than that. It is it is part of the the counter revolutionary you know uh, processes and like you know this is reconstituting the state and globally and its image. Yeah. Or or it could be the reverse. Like this is the the, the the region taking the tools of liberal uh, the system to try and embellish itself versus the Elon Musks that are really kind of playing out what we would what we would think are just basic repressive you know handbooks mm -hmm. in the Middle East you know basically let's you know, there's no the, you know, it's illegal to protest and and uh, criticize the king or whatever things like that. Yeah, and, and sorry, Alex DeWell's book, The Real Politics of the Horn of Africa, The Political Marketplace. I mean, Donald Trump is the ultimate political marketplace politician, surely. It's economic power, it's deal-making, it's bargaining, and it's authoritarian power centralization and, and ethno-nationalist politics from the top. And simple things, like think of the Abraham Accord with Israel. The one of the first, when, when the, the accords were being signed between Bahrain and Israel, they said they wanted to learn from Israel in terms, oh no, Israel wanted to learn from Bahrain about land reclamation projects. <laughs> and I just thought that, I mean, it was, it was, so it was a minor thing. Land reclamation is the right word. Exactly, land reclamation, and, uh, basically. Yeah. So it's like that learning is happening all the time at these levels, and it's kind of freaky. Um, 100%. I think, I think we need to think some more about it, actually. I think on the terms of the techniques, um, I mean, the literal techniques of repression, very much so, and the personnel as well, actually, are often shared. This, I think we should be wary of the current discourse of a kind of democratic world against an authoritarian world. Once you start to look at what's going on, in, particularly in the Gulf, Yemen, this is just not the case at all. I mean, there's literally the same people doing the same things. Um, I wonder about as a general trend. I think we need to talk more about it. There's something that's happened which is a shrinking in general of political space. Um, this kind of. I wonder if there's less need for a kind of cit citizenry with some kind of rights to participate in an economy that continues to generate profits. And as that changes or mutates, you can do away with some of the legitimacy or legitimizing props of a 
state anywhere, which in more the Arab republics that I'm talking about were different. They weren't formal, you know, it wasn't basically I voted for Bashar al-Assad. Nobody believed that. But there was a sense of kind of, at least in Egypt, Syria, Tunisia, until the late 70s, national mission in which everyone was kind of united by some sort of egalitarian thing, which played a, a role, the role that we have in other, in say Western Europe, or European democracies of having an abstract citizenry, which both of those things seem to have shrunk. Uh, but I think, yeah, probably more discussion required. Um, well, we've got over time, but let's throw it open to another round of questions, and then the, your responses to those can be your conclusions for the evening. Yes, sir. Um, I'd be really interested to hear a bit more about um, sort of co-option. I mean, Charles put his finger on it, that you get sort of revolutionaries who, who become sort of terrified of, of, of the revolution and then sort of become co-opted. And you see this in Egypt where uh, former revolutionaries sort of uh, make a pact with the, with the army to get the Muslim Brotherhood out and, and then become sort of, in some ways, co-opted, but then powerless. And it, what, <clears throat> what I find interesting is, is what does it say about uh, how we think about state and power? Yeah. Because I think in a lot of these cases, it's not just about the states or, 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 or the kind of even formal politics. It, it is about economics, it's about jobs, it's about um, uh, diffusing sort of social conflict in, in, into other kind of areas. And for example, in, in Iraq and in Lebanon, um, uh, you can see this very much. It's sort of, it's, it's, so in other words, the, the, kind of, the revolutionaries are left with nothing because those who get co-opted are powerless and the others are in jail. So, uh, okay, yeah, just your, your thoughts on, on what this corruption says about the state and how we think about the state and, and where power actually um, sort of um, resides or, or kind of flows. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, unlike many other people in the audience, I do have the uh, I have had the opportunity to read the book. I read the manuscript. I don't know whether that excuses me for getting lost and missing the start of the talk, but no. um, <laughs> but I mean I, I I just I want to think about about. Um, counter-revolutionary subjectivity and fantasy. Yeah. It seems to me that, that there are there's some really important issues here that you're raising, and that they're ones that the left has, has not dealt with sufficiently or you know appropriately. So in that sense, I don't know whether they, whether to call the book timely or whether to see it as a symptom, you know, that, that addresses our own situation like fascism. I mean, you know, it it seems to me that you know that there's. We, the, the left has really not thought enough, you know, we've been too rationalist, we've not thought about fantasy enough, and the way in which um, counter-revolution and counter-revolutionary subjectivity is, is very much a kind of preemptive strike, right? It's very much about a kind of imaginative threat to the subject, to the... Um, to the kind of sense of order, and I, I think that you know, as, as you look around the current authoritarian drift, the 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 the, the sense of gender that's that's central to that is really important, right? The idea that um, that somehow that there's going to be this challenge to masculinity, hence all the, the the horror of the trans debates. I mean, in Brazil, you know, seeing people, you know, Bolsonarists carrying placards denouncing Judith Butler. Right, well, we can be absolutely sure that those people haven't read gender trauma. <laughs> I mean, one thing you can say about those, those Bolsonarists is they haven't, they haven't read gender trouble. So there's a kind of imaginative disturbance in the subject, 
And it's worth thinking about not only that in terms of the agency of the counter-revolution race, but its appeal at a wider level. So this morning I was reading the kind of things in The Guardian about um, a certain sex offender who's just been found guilty. And the, the Guardian journalists seeming to think that this is actually going to have some kind of progressive effect. I think it will actually appeal to a lot of men. Right, you know, the, 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 the fact, you know, the fact that Trump has been found guilty of, of you know, kind of, of sexual assault will, you know, this, this is our problem. We're much too rationalist and we're not thinking enough about the disturbance within the subject and counter-revolution as a defense of a certain kind of subjectivity. Thank I mean, you. I, you know, I can go on, but I'll stop. Right, uh, that one and, and one, though, just uh, you two, and those will be the last two, yeah. Me? Yeah. Um, Jamie, you'll be expecting this question from me. I'm interested in the, the kind of aspect of the international, uh, the role of international intervention in this. And we've had conversations about this over the years. And I've tried to understand a lot of the ways in which international actors have operated in the Middle East through understanding it's a kind of form of counterinsurgency. And I know that you disagree with me on this. I wondered if you could explain mm -hmm. Um, why you disagree on, on this. I, I mean, I understand what you're trying to do in terms of looking at counter-revolution within the state, but when you start <coughs> talking about external actors, regional hegemons, international actors, um, why, ca why can't we kind of use the terms counter-insurgency? Um, because in many ways, COIN was refashioned to deal with the Middle East. David, last question to you. Thanks. Um, my question is about counter revolution. That's the sort of the title of the book. And are you suggesting that there's something different about counter revolutionary moments or processes today or post the 70s that, are, that maybe in, in like socialist and anti colonial struggles, the counter revolution grew out divides and imminence within the revolutionary project? And that now in this age of counter-revolution that you're flagging up in a broader context as well, are you saying that how we theorise and think about counter-revolution needs to be different? Right, what I propose is that Adam and then Charles um, say whatever they want to and then we'll give the final word to, to Jamie to answer all those questions. Charles, you... Uh... Well, it, it just to, to reflect on something that came up uh, in my comments, but just came up in the questions as well, which is about citizenship and the subject. So what kind of citizen is being constructed? So this goes back to the notion of the, the uh, counter-revolutionary uh, subject, but also the revolutionary subject. So clearly revolutionary subject is a very different notion of citizenship and a very different set of possibilities for realizing it, which seem to be anathema not only to those whose positions in power will be threatened, but also to those who are not in power at all, but who feel that aspects of their identity will be threatened. So much rather, as it were, go back to the question of the subject, which brings us to the, the point that you made about the link, that in a sense, you would rather have consumer rights than citizens' rights. So consumer rights are delimited, they're tied to a particular capitalist mode of production, citizens' rights are open-ended and really dangerous. So that, in a sense, is what, it seems to me, reading your book, joined many of the counter-revolutionary projects there, but also joined it to thinking about counter-revolution or counter-revolutionary elements and processes in, in the non-Arab world, in the, in the wider world. 
there's no question that I thought I could address. We could, I'll leave them to uh, Jamie. There was the point about imaginative disturbances in the counter-revolutionary subject. And it is something that sits on my mind a lot because, for example, when I was in Bahrain, I was talking to a colleague and the protest has just begun. And she's a good friend of mine, she sits in the desk, I was at the university there. And she said, oh my God, I had a real nightmare last night that we were, she's a, she's a uh, Bahraini Sunni. She said, I, I, I dreamt that we'd be put on a boat and we were sent to Saudi Arabia. And I thought, where was she getting those ideas from? And I thought, there's something in the imagination that's going, and we call it fear, but how is that fear created? And we know there's a lot of disinformation, misinformation, but the, the, how the counter-revolution constructs that, that, that um, engineers that fear in stories that connect, because it, the counter-revolutionary is popular. That's the point. Yeah, we, and, and often we as revolutionaries, we would dismiss that and say, oh, they're misguided, they're ignorant, they don't understand. But a lot of them were very educated at high level, and they had genuine fear. Um, and I, as, you know, like you said, the left um, doesn't have the tools to address the right wing in any way. And that's kind of, that's the, that's the, that's, a, that's an open question. And I just want to, to flag that up, is that, that we need to go beyond calling it fear, fear of the other. What, how, how is that fear engineered? in stories that connect and make it a populist, create the, the populism, or make the counter-revolution, uh, you know, the Baltajia or the Falul, or whoever you want to call it, um, actually genuinely believe in their cause. Yeah. Jamie, the last word is okay. Thanks. Um, thank you to everyone for the, the questions. On the question about the state, uh, power and co-option in the regime, I think it's a really interesting one. So typically, there's a typical model of the kind of Arab state or the Middle Eastern state where it's a kind of uh, something floating on top of the society. It has a separate entity that doesn't have a connection to it, it's not embedded in it, it's not part of it. I think what the counter-revolution shows, that's not true, actually. Um, it, it just might have a different way of linking into that society, which changes. So there was a period, of course, as you'll know, that in I think there was a time when the Muslim Brotherhood were basically being groomed partially in under Sadat and into parts of the state. And then to be expelled is a, another way of bringing in other people. And in fact, uh, very specifically, not just people who were afraid of the revolution, but who saw themselves as continuing the revolution. So in Tamar, they saw, which is the pop or kind of signatory movement against Muhammad al-Mursi, the president of Egypt. Uh, they saw themselves as defending the Egyptian state, which they saw as the revolutionary inheritance of Nasser. And they weren't totally wrong either, because Nasser did create a state. He did do a kind of revolution from above, and they agreed with it. They supported that. So I'm not saying that that's a good thing, but they had a, a rational understanding to a degree of the history. Um, <clears throat> on uh, yet Mandy's uh, point about counterinsurgency, I think we're going to continue discussing this. Um, it's not irrelevant. And I think that counterinsurgency is a technique, and it's definitely one that's quite, uh, you can see it in certain of these areas in, in Yemen, Syria to a degree. Uh, but there's already a lot of work on it that I don't think I could add to. And in some ways, it reflects a, a situation where you have. You have a fairly isolated or militarized revolutionary group. 
um, which is a bit different to actually the revolutionary situation sometimes. But I think there's more, more, more to be said. Um, this comes back also to David's point about uh, do we need a different understanding? I think we do. So I've used the terms political and social revolution in the talk in the book. And therefore that implies there's such thing as political and social counter-revolution. But actually, all of these ideas and our, our streams of politics have come out of dynamics of revolution and counter-revolution. So it's really that revolutions in Europe of the 17th and 18th century, culminating in the French Revolution, that create something called politics. It actually gave us the ability to talk about the political and the social. And then the attempt in 1848 to kind of refuse those with a social republic is what produced the split between liberals and Marxists and communists, which then reached another kind of, let's say, confrontation where a political revolution was counter-revolutionary in regard to social revolution after 1917. In the case of anti-colonial revolutions, it's a bit different, but being directed against very clearly social power holders, people who are landlords, settler colonists, states that are fused with relationships of exploitation, gives you a reason and gives you a set of trajectories to seek radical transformation, whether you call that socialism or whether you call that some form of national independence. We don't live in that world now. So we live in a world where those things have been kind of re-separated, if you like. Um, and in fact, I'd say often the political revolutions that have emerged have been kind of socially counter-revolutionary. I think what we saw in the Arab revolutions was not even very few people not even getting to that stage or being turned back from it. Um, on the last point, or on the point uh, Steve, I should say, so, well, thanks for pointing this out to me before. So this is in the book because Steve pointed it out to me before. Um, but it will sound like I haven't mentioned gender in the book. I have. It is throughout the book. I just uh, somehow managed to not talk about it in the talk. But particularly these kind of uh, violent fantasies of male power, which are a big part of when you look at counter-revolutionary material, because they're fantasies of subjugation. So they're, they're basically kind of fetish of order in a way, that it's also, when it's being broken, still a fetish of order, are kind of central. But they're not really restricted to, to counter-revolutionaries at all, actually. Um, and that was, I think, a very, was very clear after 2011. I think the sense of the imagination is a good place to maybe finish up. Because one of the things you look at when you look at people's testimony is, again, this expanded sense of the self. So we think of imagination as that that is the thing that isn't happening. You know, someone's imaginary is the thing that's not happening to you, that you can't do. Actually, people in revolutionary situations come to um, put themselves as far as their imagination goes. Counter-revolution is actually about putting a, a, it's a battle of the imagination backwards, which is why, actually, the, um, so much effort is put into the cultural aspect of it. You know, they really understand this, I think. 
Thank you very much. That was a, a fascinating hour and a half, and it's, it's a wonderful book for all those honest enough to admit they haven't read it. Now's your chance. I'd like to thank Ala, Charles, and especially Jamie, and I'd like to thank all of you. So thank you very much, all of you, for turning up to listen to a, a, a three very eloquent interjections. And thank you for your questions, and thank you for our speakers tonight. Thank you.